This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Today we have a book that's intriguing by title, Tomorrow I'm Dead. And our author, who joins me from the Washington State area, is Bon Yom. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. I'm glad to be here with you. Yes, and for my listeners, I will tell them that you are originally, your parents were originally from Thailand. Uh, you were born or raised in Cambodia back in the 70s when things were not doing well. In 1975, the back of your book says U.S. troops had withdrawn from Cambodia, leaving the people defenseless against Pol Pot's army, the Khmer Rouge. As the army took over Cambodia, thousands of innocent people were ordered out of their homes. In April 1975, 14-year-old Bon Yom was forced at gunpoint along with his family to march toward the steaming jungle. After a soldier separated Yom from his family, he had no idea he would not see them again for nine years. And so begins your story. Tell us, first of all, Bon, how did you arrive in the United States and what is the uh, census of your story? Tomorrow I'm dead. Share that story for us. Uh, thank you for all that out there listen. I would like to tell my story, true story, because I've been in the killing field back 1960 when I born and until 1975. My family have freedom and April 1975, when I United States take army out from the Cambodia and the Khmer to, to take over, control the Cambodia and take four people out to the jungle, a million, million people complete out. Wow. In the jungle. And it was called the and then they, it was called the killing fields because they were systematically eliminating the people of Cambodia. Yeah, they called the killing field because they forced all people out. Rich people, poor people, middle people, smart people. They forced out outside in the jungle and then they they tell us, they say no more rich, no more poor, no more teacher, no more Student, no more smart people. They use all the same people out there. And that was communism at its worst. Yeah, after after poor people out complete in the city, nobody nobody in the city, and then the poor people go to work outside in the inside the jungle, and then they've been treat us to death, and people been died died die every 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 day, every minute, every year. A lot of people die. Your book title, Tomorrow I'm Dead, was that because of your fear of the future, or was it because of starvation, lack of food, and other uh, things that were happening? Uh, my title, Tomorrow I'm Dead, that mean uh, that year when I crept with the Khmeru, forced me work for two years and a half, and the death one scoop of soup, right, and work 24 hours on the clock. And I pray for help. If I get up from a criminal, I've been come out and help more people. And that year I do. 
I escaped. A lot of people out there come help. I escaped and then and join army. And then we fight back and then we take people in the jungle. Thousand million come out and save them. And then and join army. And one day when I my army get hurt and my boss they do bad to me, so I get mad myself. Next next day I tell all my crew. I said, well, we don't want to all crew get hurt and blood come up from the body, so we need to do something. And I just decide myself. I said, well, I got to do something. I want to make time. Tomorrow I'm dead. I don't scare dead anymore because a lot of people out there starving, hungry, all every day, every time. So we need to go down there to help people. And how old were you when you joined the army? Uh, when I joined the army, I'm 17 years old. You were 17. And how did you survive the killing fields? How did you personally escape that horrible adventure or horrible uh, part of your life? Um, in the killing field, they forced all my boy and girl work very hard and eat one scoop of soup, right? You barely see the right, a lot of soup, a lot of water mm. and salt. And that year, my skin, my skin, my bones stick together and I have no hair, I have no meat in my body mm. that year. And then my friend been dying, keep dying every day. And that's, that year when I'm hungry, I got eat everything I can, and can find. I eat raw meat, I eat snake, I eat Face, I eat crop, I eat everything when it come around my face, I just crop and eat them. Mm. So get more energy day by day. Next day, I'm not dead yet. That's why I said tomorrow I'm dead, my title. Yes. You, you were educated to some degree. Uh, how was your education prior to this incident? My education, because I was a student that year. And then they take a test. They say, I'm a student. I say, no, I am a farmer. If I'm a student, they've been killing me already that year because I'm lying that, that day when get hmm. get a meeting with them. So being a the student... Poor people, yes. they keep, the rich people, they kill them all. And white people, they kill them all. And students, they kill them all. Teachers, kill them all. Smart people, they kill them all. They put on these people who don't know nothing. And then they keep them. And go to work on around the clock, it's not enough, and then people die again. Wow. They're the communists. Very, very, very difficult time. You uh, escaped or left the Cambodian Freedom Army at some point. How long were you with the Cambodian Freedom Army, and how did you uh, leave? How was it possible to leave? Um, that year, I'm single. I got five brothers, sisters, and then all separate. The Khmeru are separate, all my my brother, my sister, different way. So I go by myself. That year, when I joined the army, I think myself, I, I cannot find my parents, I cannot find my brother, my sister. I, I think they already died because I almost died a couple of times already in the killing field. And uh, when I joined the army, I've been helping people, save them a thousand, a thousand, a lot, a thousand, a thousand, every, every time I go to Cambodia, take people out, save them. And then that one, that, that one year, my mom found me. Mm. My mom found me. I'm still in a, in a fight with the Cambodian Freedom Army. And then when my mom found me, I thought, wow, 
I separated my mom from 75 until 1983. My mom found me. I don't want tomorrow I'm die anymore. I designed myself. And I just walked away from my army that, that day and go to Thailand. My parents live in a refugee camp that year. And that, so that gave I you... I just walked away from my army. Yeah. That gave you courage and, and a reason to, to no longer fight. Yeah. Because I scared to die because... I'm a top man that year because I, I'm afraid to die at all. Mm. There must have been some values, because, some values that your parents or you had by culture that helped you survive this very difficult time. What were those, and how did you incorporate those into your desire to live? Um, when my mom found me, and then my mom told me that I found your brother, I found your sister, I found your young brother already. I know, wow, that. Mm. My brother, my sister is still alive. So then my mom said, you need to come here, fail, because we don't want you war, because your brother and sister are already alive. Wow. So I decide, because that day, that last year, that day when I go to fight, that's the people in the jungle, they already out already, because 1979, when the Vietnam come, fight with the Kameru. So I'm Cambodian Freedom Army. We fight both ways. We fight Cambodia, we fight we fight Khmer, we fight Vietnam both ways and no people, no reason to stay for my life. Mm. To kill in the jungle for nothing. That's why I decided to walk away from them. Everything saved that year. Everything was everything had changed from what your original aspirations were with that uh, Freedom Army. You were there for about yeah. two, two and a half years, or is that right? Or were you just, uh, I guess you were rescued after two and a half years in the original condition with the uh, communist dictatorship. Yeah, I'd been uh, dropped with a criminal for two and a half years. And then the Cambodian Freedom, they're still alive. They sneak in at night. They take all my crew out. My crew, 200, 200 people, which escaped that night with oh. them. Abon, how, how how did you get to the United States? How did you come here? And your English is quite quite good. How long did it take you to get comfortable with the American way of life? Uh, the first of all, my mom found me, and my mom found me, and then I decided again I need to get out. I want to quit army, so I do, and I did. But uh, I go to Thailand first. To go to Thailand, my uncle live in Thailand. And I tell my uncle, tell my mom, my mom, my dad in a refugee camp in Kampur. And then my mom come see me. And then my uncle howl. And I, oh, he said, son, stay there. So next day, and uh, UN, UN like Red Cross, they come pick me up to stay with my parents. And uh, my parents, they found my young brother in United States, 1975. From a United Methodist Church, they sponsor my uncle. Wonderful. And then my mom found my uncle. Yeah. And then my uncle sponsor my mom, my dad, my young brother, from a church, United Methodist Church. And then they come here first, and then they sponsor my family step by step. That's great. That's and then come to and come to United States, Ellensburg, Washington. Wonderful. There there probably are some important messages and things to learn from your book. Why should my listeners get a copy of your book? What do you think they will learn from reading your story? What is the inspiration they will take from it? 
um, I want I want to tell all water how to survive when when the killing killing fear come up the next future because I've been experienced already. So I like to tell people how to save themselves and save to others. That's why my story I got experience survival. And there's some inspiration and inspiration there as well, correct? Yeah. Your motivation was positive. Your outcome was positive. You went through a very difficult time. And is this a uh, uh, this is only uh, 200 pages? How long did it take you to uh, to write your book? Um, that year take me two months to write my story. Only my two book. months. Wow, incredible! You have uh, a, a one. I'm right. I'm right. Cambodia first, and then I go find my friend, translate to English for two year, uh, two months. Be done one one book that year. Amazing. Are are you writing other stories related to your life? Yeah, right now all the people, all the people they read my story. The first book right now they want a second book from uh, how I do in United States. My, that's why I'm start already. Say welcome to America. How I survive in USA. Excellent. My title. Excellent. This book is titled Tomorrow I'm Dead: A Memoir, and my author has been Boon Yom. It's B-U-N, last name Y-O-M. You can do a search online and find him, and not only this book, but the next book that he will uh, be writing. You can also locate his book on Amazon.com, at Barnes & Noble, and other great booksellers around the world. This is a story that should inspire you and also, perhaps, give you a cautionary tale about what can happen when you're not watching as a country, and uh, how this uh, turned to, to a bad situation in Cambodia, and how he survived, not only him, but his family as well. Thank you for joining me today. You also have a website, correct? Yes, I have a website. And what is that? Let's go to www.iuverso.com, bookstat. All right, sir. And do you also have one under your personal name, bunyom.com? Yes, William.com. Very, very good, sir. Look forward to visiting with you in the future, and best of luck as you are making this difficult uh, and yet rewarding trans transition into uh, life in the United States over the last few years. Best to you and your family, and we hope to hear from you in the near future, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. For, in, for iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's baby and toddler instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lipman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back 
to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings from iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Our Emotional Footprint, Ordinary People and Their Extraordinary Lives. Joining me from California is Saul Levine, MD. Dr. Levine, welcome to the program, sir. Thanks for having me, Jay. My pleasure. I uh, understand uh, from reading some of your history, you have a diverse background, uh, raised in Canada to some degree, at least educated there, and now living in California. You also have written five other books for the general public. This is a unique read. You have apparently an interest in the movie industry. Your book takes on some of the characterizations of uh, Strangers on a Train, Alfred Hitchcock's classic. Dr. Levine, share with my listeners the inspiration behind what you've done, the creative process that went into writing this book. Well, let's start with the format. The format is, uh, as you said, Strangers on a Train. And I, what I've done is taken, um, sitting on, a, on an Amtrak car, that's a dirty word nowadays, uh, ten people who don't know each other, ten strangers, from all walks of life, different races, different backgrounds, and you sitting in the car with them, observing them, are making some kind of thoughts to yourself about, wonder what they're all about. He looks disheveled, she looks beautiful, or sad, or whatever. And then I proceed to tell each of their ten stories. These are true stories, but they're kind of uh, aggregates of a number of people, so nobody will be recognized. These are not psychiatric patients. These are thee and me. These are about everybody. And the point of the book and the point of uh, a lot of what I say with you asked about movies is that everybody leads a very interesting life. Even if you scratch the surface of everybody's life, I've learned over the years of doing research and, and working with people that they have highs and lows and loves and losses and successes and setbacks. This is life. When I was a and adolescent, I thought we had a straight line trajectory to success, bigger, better, more healthy. Well, you know, uh, life has its own game plan for you. There's a German expression, man traf Gott lacht, means man plans and God laughs. Mm-hmm. So all lives are convoluted. There's not a person I've met, and I've met many, who does not have this kind of life filled with drama, a rich tapestry of colors, of textures, of, of, of sadnesses and of elation. And it's really important that people recognize that. This is, and, and incorporate that and grow from the successes and the failures. Embrace both because you're going to learn from both. The second, you asked about the origin of the book. I've always sure. been writing about people in different kinds of situations. It's my interest, it's my profession actually as a psychiatrist and teacher. But I'm uh, I'm interested in it started with my own father to tell you the truth he was brown, uh, brought up in pre uh, World War II Eastern Europe I uh, was a Jewish man uh, there were anti-Semitic pogroms there were beatings there was violence there was abject poverty and he came to North America without a penny without speaking English without anything uh, escaping the Nazis who destroyed most of his family and the uh, home country which was also anti-Semitic. Yes. And he became a self-taught, cultured, soft-spoken, tolerant, loving man. I, that's what I was brought up with, this guy who mm. was very strong, worked ma- manual, I'd say menial labor jobs until he could start a business of his own, was never very successful financially, but was successful in that he imbued everybody he came in contact with with a sense of warmth and being cared for and respect and a sense of interest in them. And that's our emotional footprint, which is why I've written the book. It's, he was able to 
in spite of everything that happened to him, and actually in his adult life, as, as during my my own life with him growing up, wasn't a piece of cake. He had no money. Um, he uh, went bankrupt once in his later life. Uh, he, he had a very sick son uh, next to me who was a was autistic, retarded child. Mm. He had uh, setbacks in many ways. He had difficulties at times with my mom. But the fact is he never lost his loving kindness. When I moved out to California, finally, he came out and spent the uh, winters here with me. Uh, all my friends, uh, they tolerated me, but they just fell in love with this guy because... He uh, was a, a this this uh, his emotional footprint was so wonderful. Well, so, so and he lived to, lived to be ninety one years old. Also, is that correct? He he did live to be ninety one, and he still lives uh, larger than life, and not only my life, but all the life he's had. And actually, when I talk about emotional footprint, which is the way we affect ourselves, each other, our communities, our world, uh, it's also it is also not only that we're here, leaving that footprint. But it's after we're gone, because it's not the toys and the material things you accumulate. It's what you've imbued people with. How do they remember you? What was the, the mood that you, you uh, the ripple effect of your mood that you permeated the place with? And you've underscored so, that with the four, the four Bs, correct? Share with the, my listeners what the four Bs are that you uh, focus on. The, the four Bs are being, a sense of yourself, a belonging, a sense of belonging to uh, a group of people. It could be a family, a community, a club, or whatever, um, uh, belief, believing in a set of values, not necessarily in a God if you're not, if you're an agnostic or atheist even, but believing in having some kind of spiritual belief or some kind of awe about the universe or some kind of wonder, but also a set of values as, uh, to, to live by. You're a principled man or woman, and you live by that. So, so it gives you, it's more than just materialism and get through the day. Right. And, and our families and our friends, of course, but also what is going on in my mind, uh, philosophically, spiritually, whether you're religious or not. And the last B is benevolence. What have I done for other people? Hmm. Uh, that's built into some religions, but I'm talking about humanism. I'm talking about caring for, uh, for others, nurturing others, extremely important. And it, all this started when I started working with young people who were, were actually in cults and then gangs. And they, no matter what they, trouble they may have gotten into, I won't go into the whole, uh, all the research, but these four things were very important. And then in later life, I was studying uh, my father's contemporaries in Florida uh, who were all in their octogenarians by then. Mm-hmm. And it was the same thing. It wasn't that I was a success, successful businessman or a beautiful person or had many lovers. Uh, what kind of a person was I? Can I look in the mirror and see this person, have respect for that person? And it was the four Bs. Am I feeling grounded in myself? Do I feel... Uh, comfortable in my own skin, uh, do I take my mask off, do I feel that I belong and I'm respected and loved, an integral part of a group of other people? Do I feel that I have principles in my life, values I uphold uh, on a daily basis? And, and lastly, have I been good to people, local people, people in my family, but also in the streets, in, in the stores, elsewhere? I, I, I have a thesis that I, I mentioned, uh, and that is... Uh, that there's a, too much incivility in contemporary life. You know, the airwaves and the uh, media and the um, Internet are full of trolls and nastiness and demeanment and anger, and this has a ripple effect. All this, our footprints, yes, positive does. and negative, 
affect the way people feel after they leave us or leave our immediacy. I've seen people, and I'm sure you have too, Jay, in the stores and restaurants and everything, being rude, rude to waiters, rude to, uh, to the fellow uh, clients, Can't rude to, to uh, everybody, mm-hmm. and feel mm-hmm. that they have this right. And they, it's, but it's almost like listening to, I won't mention any names, but uh, some <laughs> special pundits on the radio right. or elsewhere who have this feeling that they have total license in saying and uh, anything they want, negative about somebody else, demeaning, criticizing, and it, it's it's uh, it's so that these are held up as examples to young children. This is the way my father is. This is the way this famous person is. This is the way our politicians are. We can be rude. We can be uh, hypocritical. We can be nasty. We can be corrupt. This is a way of life. So the the emotional footprint is about these people that I talk about on the train is not their saints and not that they're sinners. They have had dramatic lives and interesting lives from all walks of life. Uh, but at the end of the day, when they're dying, these are their life stories. And when, they, when they're looking back, they look at the four Bs. They look at, uh, have they been resilient? Have they come back? And they look especially at what kind of a person have I been to my friends, my family, my community. The people that and, you highlight in your book, you, the way you have approached this, just for my listeners' sake, is almost as though it's a fictional novel, the conversational style that you've used. And then you bring out in encapsulated uh, form the, the uh, basic focus of what that individual may have gone through in life that brought them to this point. Would that be a, a correct way to describe what you have I've penned? Right, and uh, if you've looked at the people, they're all so different in both genders and ethnic background, races, and and uh, how they're living. But and none of them, none of them has had an easy time. And since, well, nobody does. It totally life can be very challenging. And some sometimes they've done things they uh, should have been quote ashamed of, or a couple of them went to jail for a while, or a couple of them had to be hospitalized for a while in rehab centers. But in, if you look at them in the whole breadth and length of their and depth of their lives, from zero to uh, the end of their life, you, there's a summation you make at the end. And I helped make it. Uh, I knew these people. I knew some of these. I knew all of these people, but they're conglomerates, as I said. And um, they were all good people, even though in the course of their life they've done some harsh things. They tried to compensate for it. They tried to overcome. They tried for redemption. And uh, I think that's what life's all about, to try to learn from our mistakes and correct ourselves. Not everybody can, but the vast majority do. Is that why so, you call them extraordinary? Well, I want to make sure that when I say ordinary, people don't say, oh, yeah, mediocre. I'm mm. more interested, they will say, in the celebrities of the world. And the purpose of this book is you don't have to follow the lead, the lead or the lives of the Kardashians or about uh, the other kinds of shows that are on TV, the reality TV shows, and I can name a whole bunch of them, because you have that in your own life. You have the, the richness of texture and color of your own life, and, and uh, this is to get people to appreciate their own lives. And I do say extraordinary because it's we are all extraordinary and actually i was going to call this book from a piece of music called fanfare for the common man yes i was told don't use the word common man because nobody wants to be seen as common but the fact is that using that that analogy i don't mean by a common man just a mediocre i mean all men are beyond and women 
are beyond common. They are extraordinary. extraordinary. I didn't know the right word to use, but this does it. I wanted to make extra with a hyphen ordinary. That, so that we are, this book is not about celebrities. It is not about people who have made it big. It's about you and me. And uh, I hope I do, I've done it justice in this book. I'm, I'm very proud of it. I love the way it's, uh, it's laid out. I think it uh, makes it very engaging. It's not a technical book. It's one that is uh, very conversational and touches the emotions because of the way you've described it. You've described ten extraordinary people in your book. Of those ten, is there one story that to you was the most poignant that you've shared? You know, I'll tell you, Jay, it's a terrific question. I, I was thinking about that. I don't have a favorite. Mm. Uh, I, I think I start off the book with a, a woman who uh, was uh, not very attractive. I hate to use that. It sounds so sexist. But she was demeaned <laughs> by others around her. She was quite heavy, obese. Her family was uh, in, in a difficult family. There were just two parents one who thought she should be a movie star, and, a and a, her father was somebody who worked as a ship steward. And the mother actually abandoned this child when she was about uh, 10 or 11 years of age. And father then gave her up to his own, to his mother's, sorry, to his mother-in-law. The, the, the mother disappeared completely. Mm. And uh, this girl, this young girl, and her grandma, grandma that never really wanted her, but they developed a kind of caring for each other. They were both kind of homely and kind of obese. And they developed this kind of uh, partnership. Uh, and this girl went back to school, and she did well in school, and was still treated badly because she was heavy. Um, finished high school, went to college, uh, was a good student, um, became interested in, in religion. That started, her parents were forcing her to go to church, but they had no interest in it themselves. But she went back to Catholicism. And that stayed with her. And actually, she was she had no boyfriends ever. Hmm. Uh, she never thought she'd have any kind of love relationship, romance. And all that came to her in the next few years. She actually ended up, I don't want to give it all away in a sense, but she ended up an amazing person. She ended up uh, for uh, working with the Roman Catholic Church in a major diocese, uh, would help on Sundays, but became actually a very strong public activist for the rights of women in the Catholic Church before this particular pope. She's still alive. She's around 70 right now and is very active with the, um, the uh, Vatican because suddenly they've caught up to her because she has uh, led the way in a, and went for, for a lot of uh, Canadian and American nuns to ask for more power and more recognition uh, in the church for women. And one last thing, she actually met a man and had a passionate affair for over 15 years, all the while belonging to the church. And this guy was, was uh, a very well-known man, but uh, was married to another woman in another city. But they kept it up for 15 years until she said she washed her hands of him. So it's just a fascinating story. Nothing in that story is untrue. Well, there's, there's, and there's 10 stories just like that, maybe with different themes and focuses. But uh, the title of the book, again, is Our Emotional Footprint, Ordinary People and Their Extraordinary Lives. Our guest, Dr. Saul Levine, M.D., has joined me from California. Saul, where can my listeners get copies of this? Because, I, again, it's, it's not a technical book, but it does have some very important topic material that you've covered in a very conversational manner. So I think it's a, a fine book. How do we get a hold of it? 
uh, any uh, you can get it through ebooks on Amazon or Barnes and Noble on a number of, of uh, e-sites, and uh, you can order through bookstores. And it has a hard copy. is uh, It's a soft cover book, but the hard copies are not very expensive, eighteen ninety five. And uh, I hope it's it's doing very well without the kind of marketing having begun just by my telling people about it, and they're reading it and liking it and ordering it. So I, I it's a good read. But it's also important for the reader that they resonate with their own lives when reading the stories of these 10 people. And it's a unique approach. Thank you, sir, for joining me today and sharing your story. Thank you very much, Abe, for calling. Look forward to visiting with you again. I know there will be more books in the future, having your background and uh, your history. So thank you for joining me. Thank you. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 success stories from successful entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled The Sky Detective, a memoir. And our author who joins me from California is Azadeh Tabazedeth. Welcome to the program, Dr. Tabazetith. Okay, thank you. Thank you for having me. Did I get close on your name? I apologize in advance for my listeners. This is a uh, a name that is not familiar to me, so I am uh, having a little more challenge. Did I get close? Yes, you did. Obviously. Thank you. Well, it's a joy to talk with you. You are a doctor, have a doctorate, and your 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 book, uh, 246 pages, is a memoir. Share with my listeners, first of all, how you ended up in California, because I believe that's not your native uh, birthplace, and how you uh, came to write this book. Well, I'm, I was born in Iran, Tehran, and um, I went through the revolution in 1979. I was a teenager at the time. And after the uh, Islamic government um, was established, there a lot of, um, um, well, it was like um, women's rights weren't, um, uh, they violated uh, for many, you know. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. It was a difficult time, yes. correct. Still yes, is. It was a difficult time. So uh, I escaped the country uh, after the war with Iran and Iraq began. They closed down the university. So I escaped with my brother and cousin and lived in Spain for six months before uh, getting a visa to come to the United States. And what year was that for our listeners? Uh, 1982. Just just at the beginning of uh, 1982, ab- about the time that uh, the President of the United States, Ronald Reagan, was, was elected. Is that about the, about the right time frame? 
No, it is the right time frame, yes. And and share with us why you were uh, wanting to get out of Iran. You mentioned the the women's rights were certainly a part of that that reason. Uh, what else was there going on at the time? Well, I mean, they have uh, the veiling became mandatory, and they uh, shut down. The universities were shut down, but also, um, you know, you couldn't do a lot of things in Iran if you were a woman, like study the subjects that you were interested in. And I just felt that I couldn't live for the rest of my life, you know, covering my whole body and just not pursuing what I really wanted to do, which was to study chemistry. So I was really adamant about getting out of the country. But we were fortunate because my parents were wealthy and could afford to pay for us to escape Iran. A lot of um, people actually had to stay behind and just... Did 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 your parents? Did did the rest of your family? Did they remain in Iran? No, they left after six months. Um, So when we got our visas to come to the United States, they took the same uh, escape route, and they resided in Spain before they got their visas to come to the United States. You've used the term escape. Uh, I'm I'm assuming and presuming because of the uh, nature of Iran and the leadership there, that leaving Iran was not something that they uh, looked on favorably. Um, no, at the time, there was the war just started with Iraq, so all the borders were shut down, and so we couldn't actually leave the country at the time. So we had to go through either the borders of Pakistan or borders of Tur- Turkey or Afghanistan to, you know, to get out of the country. And were you able to uh, leave by those uh, ports or those, those uh, border crossings uh, favorably? I mean, was it simple to get across the border, or were there obstacles that were difficult to overcome? Well, it was difficult because it was illegal to do that. So we took a big risk by some people, you know, when they were skating, they were arrested by the government. But we were lucky that we actually made it through to Pakistan, to Karachi, without being um, being arrested. So that was, that was like a, uh, that was a risk, but we were willing to take the risk because my brother was of an age that he needed to sign up to go to the war. Mm. So he was drafted and my family just wanted to you know, to avoid that. You mentioned that you were in education in Iran and had a desire to study the sciences. What uh, what area of, uh, of uh, or degree of study had you achieved inside the, the country itself? Well, I was like just about to finish my diploma, high school diploma, but we had to escape um, sometime in early June, so I never took my finals to finish uh, my diploma. But I was able to take a lot of uh, math, physics, and um, chemistry, biology courses in the high school system in Iran. The so title. I, was, I yeah, had a good background. You had a good background. The title of your book, "The Sky Detective." What is the significance yes. of that particular title? Yes, because I uh, came here and I studied uh, chemistry. I obtained a PhD in chemistry from UCLA. But then I went for my PhD research. I did research in atmospheric chemistry, so I study basically the uh, processes that goes on in the atmosphere, the skies, like formation of clouds, pollution, and climate change, and subjects of that nature. So that's the title of the book, The Sky Detective, has to relate to the science that I did. And also, mm. Time Magazine did an article about my research, and that's the title of the article that they wrote about me my discoveries and um, uh, and my personal life. So I just kind of borrowed that title because I liked it. Beautiful. And when was this article released? 
uh, I believe the article was released in 2004 or 2004-2005, in December probably 2004. Amazing. Did your whole family immigrate to the United States or just you and perhaps a brother or two? Uh, my brother and I became, my whole family is here now. My parents live in Los Angeles and my sister lives in Seattle. So, And my brother is lives in Los Angeles as well. Wonderful. Of the stories that you have recounted in your book, now the, the time frame basically is Tehran, 1972 to 82. You have some scenes in Pakistan, Spain, and the United States. Which of those was the most difficult or scary of the events that you had to, uh, had to uh, progress through? Well, probably the uh, the escape because um, it was kind of um, I was very young and I didn't know what was going to happen to us, and it was just uh, me, my brother, and my cousin. Like, and we were like escaping with a bunch of the smugglers. Uh, they were Pakistani smugglers who used to traffic uh, drugs, but now they were trafficking people. So I was, wow. just, uh, I was. I was worried, you know, I, but I'm sure my parents were more worried about sending us off like that, but it was that's probably the scariest part of the of the of the journey, I would say. But it was part of the what you feel at least in retrospect the necessity of getting to the United States. Did you have some preconceptions of the United States that uh, maybe were false that you were happy to find were not true? Um, no, I, I, we were like, at the times of the Shah, it, Iran was very much westernized, so we were very familiar with American movies and American literature and um, and the whole, you know, the science and everything. So I was very comfortable. I really wanted to come here uh, to pursue my studies because I knew that I have a chance to, to do what I want to do here. So, you know, I always had good feelings about the United States. I mean, just that's just, the government is just a few selected people that have a propaganda. Most people are actually very much in favor of the U.S. and the policies, and particularly human rights. So I had no, you know, I had no hard feelings toward the United States. Beautiful. Now, Dr. Zada, did you have uh, any particular audience in mind in writing this book? What was the goal in, in getting it into print? Why did you want to tell your story? Well, there are a couple of reasons. It's just I went here and I studied hardcore sciences, so and that's not a field that a lot of women are in. So I wanted to write a story and inspire young women to, uh, young girls to study science and do what you know what comes naturally to them. So I wrote it for for women, you know, to inspire them. And also I wrote it because I left a lot of people behind and one person in particular I was very close to so I wanted to pay tribute to them and just just like to write something about them that they existed and their lives were um, interrupted by the revolution and I lost track of them so I wanted just to pay tribute to the, to the people that I left behind. Do you have extended families still in Iran that you are able to communicate with? I have like I have Two aunts that are three aunts that are still living in Iran, and I have very minimum communications with them uh, because of the uh, political restrictions. Seen, yeah, political situation, and I haven't seen them for thirty years. Oh so wow! It's like yeah, so that makes it hard to have like kind of an ongoing relationship. What is it that you think readers will take away from your work? What did you have a desire to to communicate with them? That. 
You know, if you work hard and you believe in yourself that you are able to achieve what's, uh, what you want in life, but you have to work hard and you have to uh, basically believe in yourself. So that's what I like, you know, for the readers to take away. Sure. And, and Doctor, how long did it take to complete this? Did you sit down uh, in, in six months, tell your story? How long did it take to complete? Probably about 10 years because for seven years I was a professor at Stanford, so I had a really busy schedule. So I only really focused on it for the last three years to get everything in order and, you know, to do some research on the history. So uh, maybe like uh, for three years, but I've been working on different stories for about 10 years. And was there any challenge in, in getting the Sky Detective, a memoir, completed? Um. It was just when I was working, it was very difficult because I also have three children. So I, I was a professor and it just took, you know, I didn't have that much time to write. But then I took a few years off. That's when I got freed up and could, could write it down and just edit it because you have to edit it many, many times. Sure. So yeah. Is there, is there another book in your future? Do you, do you feel like you have more to tell not only about your story, but perhaps in the field of science? I probably will because this story is mainly covers the time when I was a child and adolescent and like my escape from Iran. So I like to write about, you know, my scientific discoveries and, you know, how, how I came up with different hypotheses and how, how science works to get something completed. So I probably would like to write a book about, more about science, like, but, but in a way that is approachable by, you know, by non-scientists. Good. I might be able to understand something that you uh, that you communicate in that book. I look forward to hearing from you about that as well. Uh, Doctor, you have a degree in sciences, and uh, what else have you done? Who else have you been associated with that might be of interest to my readers? Well, I worked for many years for NASA. Um, I was an earth scientist at NASA. I studied the ozone layer, the depletion of the ozone layer, and was instrumental in banning the use of uh, chlorofluorocarbons that deplete the ozone layer. And after I worked for NASA, I also uh, was a professor at Stanford, professor of geophysics for seven years. And after that, I took a few years off uh, academia to write my memoir. You have had a fascinating history and certainly have been what I would call an achiever. So thank you again for coming to this country and adding to our culture. Thank you very much. Thank you for sharing your story on this, your first published book, The Sky Detective, a memoir. And our author has been Ozada Tabazeda. I think I got it pretty close, did I? Yes, you did. And you do what, would you like for me to uh, give more information about our I'd, website? Yes, yes. Let's find out where we can get copies of it and also your website, please. Yes, the copies can be bought on Amazon. And my author website is com, which is a... Z-A-D-E-H-T-A-B-A-Z-A-D-E-H dot com. Thank you for spelling that out. That was uh, very helpful, and I'm sure my listeners will, will want to get a copy of this, those who are interested in history and also the uh, culture of Tehran and uh, Iran. And your story, I think, would be uh, fascinated by this read. Thank you again for sharing time with me today. Again, the story title is The Sky Detective, a memoir, and you can do a search under that name, and I'm sure find it if you have difficulty with the author's name. So that's a great way to find it. Thank you again for joining me today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. 
iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.